Chapter 9 Not Since the Donner Party Trying to find the right spot for the tattoo artist's tents at each show was like NASA trying to figure out where to safely land a space probe on Mars. Ronnie and Naomi walked the venues looking for the perfect spot that would keep the artist in the shade the longest. Sunset could be unbearable. Unfortunately, it was over 100 degrees at our first Texas stop at the Far West Rodeo in San Antonio, and no amount of planning could make that okay. We added additional standing air conditioners and fans to the artist's tents, but it was unbearably hot with the sun beating down and dry and dusty. The ground was so baked it had giant cracks in it. Everyone was suffering from the heat. My freshly tattooed arm was roasting in the sun, even with a long sleeve shirt on. Nashville Pussy played at sunset every day, and the sun hit them like lasers and produced some strange tan lines. It took its toll on Ryder Size, their guitarist, who at many shows stripped to her underwear, climbed the scaffolding, and then after the set, ran straight to catering and jumped in the giant tub filled with ice and drinks. Ryder was having a great tour. At one of our shows, she ran into a guy she knew in high school who'd been the hotshot guitarist in town back then. He was a few years older, she'd been a bratty teenage guitar player who followed him around, and he'd wanted nothing to do with her. His band was on Tattoo the Earth for that show only and played on the second stage before the doors opened. When he asked what she was doing there and she told him she was headlining the second stage, his mouth dropped. And she enjoyed one of those you-shouldn't-have-underestimated-me-motherfucker moments. We played four shows in Texas, none of them sold enough tickets, and all of them were infernos. One independent promoter had bought all the Texas shows. He got creamed in San Antonio, and it didn't look any better for the other shows. Ozfest and Warp Tour played the day before or after us for some of the shows, and that hurt all of us. After the first show, it was going to take a miracle for the rest of the Texas swing to break even, and the whole enterprise was getting tired and sloppy. One of the stage riggers got hurt setting up the lighting, which was a result of lousy routing, alternative venues, and the heat. Fran was shooting a men who were like a modern-day sex pistols and were unpredictable on stage. I'd loved punk rock in the 1970s, and Amen spoke to those roots. Fran shot them every day because he never knew what crazy shit they were going to do. In San Antonio, Fran was perched on the corner of the stage when the bass player kicked a mic stand and the heavy bell at the bottom of the stand hit Fran in the head and knocked him out cold. He woke up in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. The members of Slipknot were also getting injured and they were having their own internal struggles and strife, in addition to a grueling tour. And that night, Clown shaved the hair off his stage mask, which made it even creepier. We hired a caterer in San Antonio for the four Texas shows, dependent on how the catering was for the first show. The caterer pulled out all the stops. Chicken, ribs, cornbread, banana pudding. It was the best food of the tour. When we met with the caterer after dinner to talk about the rest of the shows, and when he heard how much Zukoski was willing to pay them, they dejectedly agreed to do the remaining three shows. But the variety and quality of that first meal in San Antonio degraded with each show, and by the last one it was basically white bread, gravy, and beans. The next show was at the Mercedes Showgrounds, a rodeo not far from the Mexican border in the Rio Grande Valley. The show had barely sold 3,000 tickets, and we got crushed. There was no way we could break even in Texas, and the promoter was going to lose a serious chunk of money. 
It's never great having a show bomb, but doing it in a fiery Tex-Mex dust pit made it unbearable. I was told that Mexican metal fans love Slayer and would come pouring over the border once we opened the doors, but it didn't happen. I stood on a hill looking at the border and there was nothing and nobody. The only bright spot was the concrete pavilion where we set up the village. It had built-in power, a roof, and was ideal for the tattoo artists. Sean was scheduled to tattoo a local DJ live on the air, and once the DJ was laid out upon a table and Sean started tattooing, Naomi headed across the field to the production office, satisfied that she finally got the village set up right. She was halfway there when she heard Sean over the radio. Naomi, he said, the radio breaking up. Go ahead, Sean, Naomi replied. Naomi, flood, oh my God, and then the radio went dead. She ran back to find that a flash flood had swamped the pavilion in 18 inches of water. It hadn't even rained, and no one could tell us where the water came from. It just came in like a wave. The best village setup of the tour had lasted 10 minutes. The shows where tattooing worked successfully were the exception, and it was clear we'd need to make changes before next year. The artists were tattooing their customers on the bus, and that could be a solution, though it took away from the village not having the artists there. We had thought about RVs for the artists, but that would have been a considerable expense. We knew that tattooing was going to be a challenge, but it was much worse than we imagined. The tattoo artists were fed up, and there was not much I could do about it before the end of the tour. The local stage crew warned us that because we were so close to the Mexican border, all our buses would be searched by Border Patrol when we left Mercedes, and that drugs were one of the things they were looking for. We put the word out to all the bands and crew, and whatever wasn't securely hidden was consumed before we left, which produced one of the wilder parties of the tour. Betsy watched from our bus in amazement that so many people could be so fucked up, and the yahooing and cavorting went on right until the buses left. Shannon Larkin, the drummer of Amen, said that Tattoo the Earth was the most debauched tour he had ever been part of, and Mercedes the crowning achievement. I was too burned out to partake. I hid my shit on one of the band equipment trucks, knowing they were probably hiding their shit in one of mine, and fell asleep before we left the venue. I vaguely remembered stopping and flashing blue lights. They searched one out of three buses, and ours wasn't one of them. We thought we had warned all the bands, but Nashville Pussy hadn't gotten the memo and were caught by surprise when they saw buses being pulled over. Nashville Pussy's bus had become the party bus for all the bands, and at the moment, there were roughly 25 individual things that needed to be hidden, including a gravity bong made out of a two-liter Pepsi bottle that then got shoved into a champagne ice cooler. As the bus was being waved over, Ryder Size ripped off all her clothes and answered the knock at the door totally naked, looking like she had just woken up. What's up? She asked them, rubbing her eyes. Oh, we're so sorry, one of them said, averting his eyes. Um, can you, uh, we need to search your... No problem, she said. Just give me a chance to get dressed. Take your time, ma'am. We'll be outside when you're ready. That gave the band a chance to hide everything though the search ultimately produced a small amount of weed and the band was detained at Border Patrol for a few hours. Joining them there were Slayer, whose search also turned up something the Border Patrol was identifying as heroin, but the band's tour manager was saying was hash and that it belonged to a crew member. 
Whatever it was, Ryder saw Carrie King standing behind glass with arms folded, furious, staring at his tour manager like a supervillain from a cartoon whose laser vision could cut a person in half. Jeff Hanneman and Paul Bostoff were giggling watching spiders fighting in webs on the wall, and Tom Araya and his wife were giggling in their own world. Slayer's bus was impounded and several crew arrested, and they made it to the next show in Houston just in time to play another rodeo. The last show in Texas was at an amphitheater in Dallas. Being in an amphitheater after three rodeos was like camping for months and then getting to stay in a five-star hotel. The promoter was rightfully forlorn, we had ruined his summer to say the least, and as an independent didn't have the kind of cushion to absorb a loss that Clear Channel would. We promised to return next year with a stronger lineup and a reduced price to make it up to him. We could not fucking wait to get out of Texas. I spoke to Zukoski on the phone, and he said that with only Red Rocks, Los Angeles, and Phoenix in front of us, we were home free, but it didn't feel that way to me. It was easy for Zukoski to say that from his deck in New Jersey, but I was fucked up from being on the road. The stress, the heat, the losses, the monotony of bus travel were all catching up to me. I hadn't been completely upright and coherent before we'd started, and I definitely didn't improve as we went. A rock doc, a young doctor who writes prescriptions for a fee, showed up in Dallas and we all had our quote-unquote examinations. I stocked up on pain pills and sedatives, and the doc's visit helped chill out the entire enterprise. But nothing could chill out Paul Booth. Our relationship had gotten worse, and every washed-out village or dusty rodeo only created more friction. Philip and Bernie had gone back to Europe after Pontiac, and we had Jack Rudy and Gil Monty traveling with us for the remaining dates. Jack and Gil were old-school West Coast legends. They were of Hank Schiffmacher's generation, and the vibe among the tattoo artists changed instantly once they were on board. Sean, Philip, and Bernie hadn't bought into Booth's complaining and brooding and knew we would fix it for the next tour. But Gil and Jack fed into Booth's shit, and Gil and I butted heads. Why do you get the back lounge on the tattoo artist bus? Gil asked me one day in front of the other artists. Why do you get the privilege? Because I paid for it, Gil, I told him. You pay for the bus and you can have the back. Booth was wound up when we left Texas and our issues boiled over in Colorado. He just wouldn't stop harping about how the tour was 90% music and 10% tattooing and focusing on trivial problems that were out of my control. I was just trying to get this tour across the finish line, knowing it was just the beginning for us and that the ultimate goal was for tattooing to take a more prominent role. But I could not get that through to him. At a rest stop on the way to Red Rocks, I vented to Sean about Booth and how we had all given him a chance to be part of our thing, that he had done nothing but make it a bummer, and that I'd had it. You're the guy, Sean, I told him. I can't do another tour with Booth. We'll deal with whatever fallout there is, but you're the tattoo artist to lead us. Whatever you need me to do, bro, he said, and we hugged. As we hugged, I looked over my shoulder and saw Booth looking at us from the bus. The window was open and I wasn't sure how much of our conversation he'd heard, but I didn't care. Zukoski had always said that whoever the tattoo artists were on the tour would have no effect on ticket sales, and though I disagreed with him before the tour, I was starting to see his way of thinking. Booth was the most temperamental artist on the tour, 
tattoo, or music, and the reality was I could replace him with any competent unknown artist and it wouldn't affect the box office. I had given him every opportunity, forgiven all mistakes, and it was never enough. I was standing backstage at Red Rocks when Booth came over with Gil and Jack to discuss Betsy and I having the back lounge again, and I just snapped. You fat fuck, I snapped at Booth. I'm done with your shit. Gil said I couldn't talk to Booth like that, and Booth was acting up in arms and I could see where this was heading. So I walked to the bus to cool off. But they followed me and soon were joined by the body piercers and Sean. They were surrounding me, and I'm not good surrounded. Gil said I couldn't fire Booth, and I told them they were all fired. Sean wouldn't make eye contact with me, and I fired him too. This was that outsider tattoo bullshit Lyle Tuttle had warned me about. Sean had no choice but to go along with it. It felt like Booth had orchestrated the whole thing just to put Sean in a position where he had to choose between me and the tattoo artists. I went on the bus, and it was just me and Betsy. I told her what was happening and soon Ronnie was on the bus trying to smooth things over. I told him I'd hire a couple of tattoo artists for the last shows and we'll be done with these motherfuckers and move on. Zukowski got on the phone and said I shouldn't fire the tattoo artists and that I should skip the show, head to LA and let him fix what happened. Betsy had been looking forward to Red Rocks and was upset that we had to leave. We, both of us, had gambled and sacrificed to make the tour happen, and now it had turned on us. Tattoo the Earth was a selfless endeavor for me, even though my ego was out of control for some of it. Anything I did was in service to the idea, and now the idea had turned to shit. I agreed to head to L.A., though there was a part of me that wanted to head back to Massachusetts and put all the bullshit behind me. Ronnie was going to call a cab to take Betsy and me to the airport, but I nixed that grabbed our bus driver, commandeered the bus, and had him take us to the airport. I never even saw the stage at Red Rocks, and my anger and resentment built as we arrived in L.A. The owner of the agency group flew in from London along with promoters from Australia, Europe, and Asia to showcase Tattoo the Earth for international tours in 2001, but I was having trouble showing any enthusiasm. Zukowski said the road had swallowed me up, that he'd left me out there too long. He said I'd feel differently once I got home and that I should play the game for two more shows and then we could fix it. I avoided the tattoo artists in San Bernardino, Betsy and I were done traveling on the bus, and Zukowski worked with Booth to get him through the last two shows. I knew why Sean stood there as part of the gang that surrounded me, but I felt betrayed, and we didn't have much to say to each other when we saw each other. Booth had run to Clown and Carrie King and told them all the hardships the artists had endured, how I didn't give a shit about tattooing and only cared about money. The last part was ironic since I barely made any money on the tour, and anything we did make was less because of all the money Booth blew on unusable sets he designed. Zukowski had seen plenty of people lose it on the road and knew it was part of touring, but what Zukowski couldn't abide was Booth going to our employees and airing our dirty laundry. I saw Clown backstage and he gave me a look that said he didn't want to be dragged into our problems. He had plenty of his own. Booth's antics hurt us with the bands and embarrassed us, and Zukowski and I agreed we had to cut Booth loose for any future tours. Naomi was disappointed by Booth's behavior and it put her in an uncomfortable position. 
She said Booth was contrite at Red Rocks. She noted that the village setup on a giant helicopter pad had worked well and that Harry Krishna's brought a ton of vegetarian food for the crew, so she'd had a good day. The L.A. show took place in the Orange Grove Center in San Bernardino, and it was an evil show. At one point, someone lit a bonfire in the middle of the mosh pit, and the fans danced around it. This is your show, huh? The L.A. promoter asked me as we looked over the scene. At least there's a lot of them, I replied, which was true. We'd sold over 10,000 tickets. And you know, none of these kids are going to go shoot up their high school tomorrow. They got it all out of their system here. Zukowski was working the agency group entourage who seemed impressed by the attendance and the village, but Zukowski was also speaking to some other agents he'd invited to the show. Zukowski was not happy with the agency group for a number of reasons, but mainly because Kirby had tried to kill the tour before we got it off the ground and overcharged us for all his acts. Zukowski was not impressed by the international buyers. He never saw the international opportunities for the concept. I'd always envisioned us playing every corner of the globe and was pleased the buyers were there, but this was Zukowski's deal. He had gotten us this far, and he had a plan on what could take us to the next level, and he wasn't sure it included agency group. Betsy and I flew to the last date in Phoenix, and the heat in Texas paled in comparison to the furnace blast that hit us in Phoenix. The show took place at the Manzanita Speedway, a legendary dirt racetrack, and ticket sales were light. It was the last date announced, and there had been some talk about canceling it, but Zukowski made sure it happened. It was unbelievably dry and dusty backstage, and when the sun began to set with a stack of flattened race cars silhouetted in the background, the whole scene looked like something out of Mad Max. It was a particularly violent mosh pit, and there was a constant cloud of kicked-up dirt. During Seven Dust set, someone yelled nigger at LeJean Witherspoon, and the band stopped. Security moved in on the guy just as the band jumped off the stage and the scene almost devolved into a full-on rumble. LeJean had heard this on tour a few times and the band had just had it. They were ready to give the racist a good old Atlanta stomping, but the guy was rushed out of the venue. Just as Slayer started playing, I noticed the sky get dark and ominous and what looked like a giant red cloud approaching us. The wind was picking up and the cloud was getting closer. I asked a local standing near me what was happening. Oh, that's a haboob, he replied. A what? A haboob. It's an Arabic sandstorm. You're pulling my leg. I'm not, he said, and pointed to the stage. And I would take down those scrims, cover things up, and tie everything down. It's pretty intense when it hits. When the storm did hit, it produced an almost total blackout. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face, and I had to wrap a t-shirt around my head. Naomi saw the storm coming from the production bus and ran to the village, but there was not much she could do. Slayer played right through it. It looked like Slayer were the house band for the end of the world. And you know, that would have been fine with me. I imagined all the sand turning into a funnel and sucking up the entire speedway, us with it, and the whole fucking thing being washed away until there was nothing left of us but a stray amp and some moldy chicken salad.